0: Welcome back to Mathematically Speaking. I'm your host, Adam Allred. So before everyone had phones in their pockets with basic calculators on them, teachers had the edge. Students had to memorize math facts and arithmetic skills because, quote, in the real world, you won't have a calculator. Or when calculators became more common, it was you should learn how to do it the way people did it before calculators were invented. But when was that? When was the first calculator invented? Well, it turns out students were right. People used to walk around with calculators all the time, and their portability was a big part of their construction and they affected the entire number system. So on this episode, we are talking about the history and invention of the calculator. And I'm going to make an argument that at least in the classroom, some of these should be brought back to help teach arithmetic. Now when I say calculator, all I mean is something that is used to help do calculations. This begins with coins and a table. The table is used for the calculations. It's like counter, a phrase still used today, but unlikely that people are still using it the same way. Normally we call it our kitchen counter. So back in the day it would have been literally the thing that you count on that just happens to be in the kitchen. We spoke about the Egyptian counting, counting system and how they used a marked value system where each symbol is represented by each number is represented by a symbol. They did have theirs in groups of 10, so a person could, could carry around a bag of these coins and do calculations. Addition and subtraction would be very simple. Just combine the coins represented 1, 10, etc. and then exchange them when that group exceeds 10. This is what we do with money. If we were counting out some change and we had 12 dimes and f- or 12 pennies, 4 dimes and 8 quarters, we would know that we could exchange 10 of those pennies for a dime since 10 pennies makes a dime. We could exchange eight of those quarters for $2. And this idea isn't too far removed from us. This idea of collecting and exchanging is the essence of what arithmetic is about. Arithmetic questions aren't asking for solutions. Only equations do that. The question, what is 5 times 6, it's asking a what. We just rewrite the expression of 5 times 6 as 30 for convenience. So the Egyptians just used coins and tables. The next calculator was the Roman tabula. Now this piece of technology is wonderful I think and it makes use of both marked value and place value. Part of the genius of the Roman calculator and the number system was the creation of subgroup symbols. So in the Egyptian system is 1, 10, 100, 1000, etc. only groups of 10. The Roman system had groups, everything in sets of 10 but there were symbols for 5, 25, 50, etc. much like the US monetary system penny and dollars tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars. There's also nickels and dimes and quarters. So they had the vertical line for 1, an x for 10, a c for 100, an m for 1,000. Subgroups had a v for 5, l for 50, d for 500. These subgroups were merely convenience. It would be much easier to carry around a nickel than 5 pennies. Now, there is an important misconception that I will correct. Whenever people learn of Roman numerals, We are told that IV and VI mean 4 and 6, and similar for IX and XI, meaning 9 and 11. This is not true of the original Roman system. Their number system was a marked value system, which means that the position didn't matter. You could just count how many of each symbols you have. So IV and VI both mean 6, because you have a 5 and a 1. 5 plus 1 is 6. This ordered system comes around in the 13th century when Roman numbering was still around and merchants were trying to label their goods. It takes up way less space to have IV mean 4 than IIII. The marked value system was given place values in a sort of way. Doing this added some fragility to the system and added confusion to the readers and users alike. So back to the tabula. It was made out of a piece of wood or marble, maybe with seven horizontal lines carved in. Each line was labeled with a symbol along the left margin, so I was in the bottom row and M was on the top, and then the others in numerical order in between. So if a stone piece was placed in the V row, then it represented a group of five. I could take that stone piece in the V row and split it into five pieces in the I row. The arithmetic done by this is very easy to do and very much like the Egyptian one. You gather stones into groups of five or ten and then shift them around. The bonus to this calculator is that you can't run out of certain kinds of coins. You just need to put something in the groove to represent that number. If you've ran out of stones but you're munching on some raisins, you can start using those instead, and the numerical information won't change. You're only limited by the size of the tabula. Now real quick, whenever we transition from a new calculator, we must make a trade. By adding a place value system into the tabula, the system loses the mutability of the the Egyptian system. You could scramble up the coins and still have the same number. If you scramble up your tabula, you'll lose your number, and maybe you won't get it back unless you happen to remember what it looked like. The strength of the system will be important to note, and it's important because that will determine how long it lasts within mathematics. And if the trade-off is worth it, the calculator gets replaced. Now China and Japan had a similar system as well starting with just a mark value system and then a calculator to tack on the place value system. This system started in China and then was imported to Japan along with the practice of calligraphy and literature. But there are some differences from the Roman system. Instead of subgrouping, it created nine symbols, much like how we have digits one through nine. But remember, zero is not invented yet. And by having individual symbols like this, there can't be a problem like there was with the Roman system IV versus VI. In addition to the symbols for the digits, there were grouping symbols as well. So the numbers written vertically would have the digit and then the grouping symbol. So for 30, they would write 3 and then 10, because 30 is three tens. And this is so much simpler than previous systems. Two symbols is all it take, would represent a number like 40, rather than x, 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 or four horseshoes if we were in the Egyptian notation. Now, the Japanese calculator was similar to the abacus, called the soroban, a hollowed out box with vertical poles along it and a crossbar perpendicular to those. The difference was that instead of placing the stones in the grooves like the tabula, the soroban had bamboo beads built into it. So to start, you'd push the beads into the larger space away from the crossbar. Then you push the beads towards or away from the crossbar as you do your counting. It's a bit more complicated than the tabula, but there is of course a trade-off. For one, this one is much lighter than the tabula, being made of bamboo as opposed to stone or marble. And this convenience made means that arithmetic could be done anywhere as long as there was a flat surface. It also means anyone could use it. However, you were limited to the number of beads built into the Sorbonne. Unlike the tabula, you can just keep adding things as long as they fit in the groove. So if you were doing large calculations and ran out, You'd have to transfer your accounting to paper or commit it to memory so that you could clear the board and continue. But again, there's always trade-offs. Before we move on to the technology that gave us the Hindu-Arabic number system, I want to think more about the Chinese system. Why was theirs so much clearer and simpler from the start? It took someone else to change the Roman system to make it more condensed. The real world had to alter the mathematical one. However, the Chinese system was already built with the real world in mind. By real world, I mean normal people, people who aren't academics. Only 5-10% to 10% of the Roman people were literate in any form. They were not the ones using the notation. It didn't matter those that made it made it easy for other people to use. In China, however, literacy rates were much higher. For men, it was about 30-45%, to 45%, and for women, it was 2-10%. This includes all peoples, elites and commoners alike more people needed to use the notation, which means it had to be made as simple as possible. So a number a number that was able to be represented by two or just three symbols is much better than one that had to be, that needed several of the same symbol to represent it. This is the difference that when math is made for mathematicians as opposed to math being made for the people to use it. Now moving on, off my soapbox, from China to India, This is where we get the Hindu-Arabic system, the system that the Western world uses. And when I said that mathematics wouldn't exist today without Asia and the Middle East, this is why. The arithmetical system that they created and that we adopted has the flexibility needed for higher math to be created. I won't spend too much time on this, since most of us already listening know how to use it. So the tabula and the soroban is replaced entirely by paper and ink. Now that we've traded in convenience for mobility entirely, math is now 100% more mental. Instead of seeing and counting how many beads or stone you had, you had to memorize math facts. You have to know that the sum of two and three is five. I suppose you could still carry around stones or beads and do arithmetic with them on the side, if you were unsure, but why do that when you have your fingers? Counting on your fingers is part of the calculator in the Hindu-Arabic system. Yes, you do it less the more often that you get used to the numbers and the math facts. But there's no real there's no real reason to stop using your finger to count. Speed is not a requirement in counting, just accuracy. But the spirit of the tabula and soroban is still survived in the Hindu-Arabic system. It started with the grid with a single number in each spot. Again, it's a place value system. You line the numbers you want to play with and then you start. Is a nice system that allows many different ways to count and play with numbers. The way that someone groups the numbers isn't dictated by the paper and pen the same way it was with the tabula. If I was adding several numbers and each one got above ten, and I wanted to just write the number it added to and not carry ones, there's no reason why you had to. Paper and pen didn't tell you you have to. Now, many cal- many calculators came after the invention of the Hindu-Arabic system, of course, and they all but they all relied on it. With the invention of computers, the calculators were then improved. Some today able to solve problems with variables in them, some can do calculus. Now this is the end of the season covering arithmetic and measurement. There is much more I could have covered though. I didn't cover fractions or negative numbers in depth. I didn't discuss the nature of multiplication or division. But as far as a historical and sort of philosophical approach, this is as far as we're going to go. Now after mathematics leaves Egypt, it moves over to Greece. In addition to the geographical change, the concept of number changes and the focus of math changes. There will be more conversation about the connection of philosophy and math, with the more prominent mathematicians also being world famous philosophers. We will meet our first female mathematician make sure to follow me on various social media pages for the updates on when those episodes have been released. Thank you for listening to Season 1. I hope you've enjoyed it. Can't wait to see you in Season 2.